here's the deal today. This is really exciting. I'm, I think uh, you guys are in for a real treat because we have someone very special. A very good friend of ours uh, is here to speak this morning, and I'm happy to introduce you, Dave Schmelzer. Now, Dave Schmelzer is uh, a good friend of ours and has been friends with Charles and Caroline for decades. He is part of the team that worked with Charles to start the church in Boston, our sister church in Boston. Remember just a couple weeks ago, uh, Steve Watson, who's now the senior pastor at Reservoir Church, was here speaking, if you remember. And that's a church that uh, Dave and Charles started, and the church that sent Charles and Caroline and the team down here when we started this church 12 years ago. So we have a long relationship with Dave and it's been wonderful. Now, Dave has since moved on. He's an author. He's, his book, Not the Religious Type, is one that we hawk all the time around here. We're always trying to sell that thing uh, because we think it's wonderful. And Dave is uh, kind of the captain, the executive director of our Blue Ocean Faith crew that we're a part of. And so we just love Dave, and he always has wonderful things to share. And so without further ado, welcome our friend Dave Schmelzer. I have adjusted the stand. Tall. See, did you see how I did that? Well, as always, it's totally fun to be here, and I get to do a twofer. I get to get in a car and go to this retreat afterwards and enjoy the rest of your crew. So that's entirely fun and enjoyable. Um, I was thinking, let me pray first before I tell you what I was thinking. God, I pray for a good time here. I pray for encouragement. I pray for a sense that you are a living God. That's always what helps me, is to feel like somehow you're not just a concept. I'm not just trying to reframe my thinking in a helpful way through a good concept, but that somehow I'm given an encounter with a God who loves me, who cares, who gives me hope that all the pressure and burden of my life is not on my own shoulders. I pray for at least a taste of that here. You know, who knows? That may be a lot to ask, but that is the dream. And so we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Anyway, so it's totally fun to be here. And um, when uh, Charles and Caroline invited me to come both to this retreat and here, and they said, well, what do you want to talk about on, um, on the Sunday morning before we go to the retreat? Uh, I thought, oh, I know what I want to talk about. I've been thinking a ton about kind of what I prayed about, about God as a living God, as an experience, not just a, a new concept. And uh, I think back, I've been working this this summer. And so a few weeks ago, I got invited to speak at this super large church in San Diego that's become friends of ours. Charles has actually been there. So they're a church on Sunday mornings of maybe like 2,200 or something. So big church. And... Um, and they asked me to speak, and they said, what do you want to speak on? And I said, ooh, I know what I want to do. I know it would serve my purposes. With a group that size, I want to pretend I'm like a faith healer. And I just want to go up and say, be healed and see what happens. Because, I mean, the odds are good, right? Get so many people, someone's going to get healed. I mean, just, it's just, I mean, it's statistically almost like a no, a no miss. You can't miss on that one. And so they said, sure, you know, well, that'd be great. And so I did, and it got great stories, you know, because maybe it's just the sheer numbers. But so people then started lining up to tell me stories. A guy comes up and says, oh, you know what? I wear a heart monitor because I have a heart problem. And, uh, you know, my number's been terrible. The reading's been terrible. The second you prayed, it went to normal. It has been normal in months. There it is. It's normal. Somebody else came up and said, I've been wearing, I actually heard this the next day. They came up to me and said, I had a horrible accident, uh, a knee accident. That I've been in a knee brace in September, and, uh, and my knee's fine. Took, took the brace off. I, I feel perfectly fine. Um, my mom came and visited because she lives in near San Diego. So she came and she said, I was having an asthma attack. She's had 50 years of asthma this morning. You prayed. The asthma attack stopped. And um, so there's just, I think it's so fun to think about why does that happen exactly? Like, what's that about? 
And when we started this church up in Boston, we had that experience somewhat. That, that was somewhat of our, our calling card, is that we were in this place where almost no one went to church, and uh, full of intellectuals at the beginning. We got a, a bunch from Harvard and things like that. And uh, we grew really quickly and got some attention. And part of the attention we got was this sort of stuff, is that we were drawing people who had not been churchgoers, and it was often around the fact that God did stuff, rather than that we were just smart people and we could speak to them as smart people. And... Um, and they respected our smarts. It really, what got attention wasn't quite that. I remember I, we were just starting the church and trying to think, what does it look like to come to a place where almost no one goes to church and we didn't know what we were doing? And, and we had a small group of people who were uh, joining us. And uh, there were maybe 20 of us in a living room. And someone brought their friend. They were a student at MIT, and they brought their fellow student at MIT. He was not this church-going type, but they thought he might like us, and so he was showing up. And it was his second week in the group. And so I met him last week. He seemed like a nice guy. And he came back. And, uh, and so we were just sitting around waiting for the group to start. And he said, um, or I said to him, you know, how's your week gone? And he said, oh, I didn't mention last week, but I actually have a health problem. I have this ulcer. He says a lot of students at MIT have ulcers. And there's so much stress. And so it's been really bad. And I'm actually scheduled for surgery in two days. And it's just really been bugging me. And I don't know what I was thinking, but I just sort of, without, as he's talking, I'm like listening, looking him in the eye, and meanwhile, my hand is reaching out, and like, I'm, I'm not losing eye contact, I'm putting my hand on his stomach, and I'm still looking at him, hearing what he's saying, and I'm saying, be healed in Jesus' name. And he looks appalled, like, you touched my stomach, I just met you. And then he stops, and he, and he like shrinks back, and then he says, actually, it feels better, and he never had the surgery. Um, there was, uh, we'd just gotten started, we were in the school, and uh, this, uh, it was getting kind of like a, a happening thing. So we had lots and lots of people streaming into this elementary school. And this one day I'm speaking and there's this kind of guy, everybody as tall as I am, big tall guy, kind of stern, a little older than I am, sitting right in the front row and kind of glaring at me. And so I tried to go over to talk to him and then he like ran, he took off. And the next week he's back, front row, glaring at me. And, uh, and I went up and I said, hi, my name is Dave. His name was also Dave. And I said, oh, great. And uh, so what brought you here? And he's like, he's kind of an uncomfortable guy. So it was like a long pause. He looked at me kind of quizzically. like, And uh, finally he said, well, I live in the neighborhood. And I saw all these people. I said, Ed, you just go wherever you see a lot of people? Or what, what's that about? He said, well, I made this deal with my wife. He just, he married late in life. And uh, so he, he's probably at that time in his mid-40s. And he said, um, I, I've been married like a couple years. And we'd agreed that. Whatever else happened in our marriage, religion would not be a part of it. I said, and yet here you are. He said, yeah, I was out for a walk last week, and I saw these people going in, and I just kind of went in. And I said, okay, but you came back. He said, yeah, I liked it. Don't blow it. <laughs> okay. And uh, so we talk, and then like a week later, his wife, with whom he'd made the agreement never to do religion, I see her not in this morning meeting, but we had these evening meetings where we were trying to figure out this kind of spiritual, supernatural side of God stuff. And so we were, the evening meetings was where we particularly did that, and there she was. She didn't come to the morning thing, for whatever reason, he brought her to that thing. And so, indeed, she was kind of glaring, and, um, and at the very end, they're about to leave, and someone says, oh, I was praying and trying to see if God wanted to do anything, and he told me there's someone here who's deaf in their right ear. Well, she was deaf in her right ear. She not since birth, since she was like four, and now she's in her 40s. She'd been deaf in her right ear. And so she thought, huh. And so someone said, I'll pray for you. And she prayed for her, and you can see where this is going. She could hear. First time since she was four, she could hear out of that ear. 
And uh, so suddenly, she's now a very dedicated member of the congregation, etc. She's in, and he's in. So we get all these stories. We did not know what we were doing. We just kind of, it was sort of like, almost like an abstract thought to us. That if we were going to go and start a church, in theory, we believed in God. And in theory, if we believed in God, that God, like, did stuff. That God was not just a better philosophical idea. That that didn't interest us, that God, like, did stuff. And that was really all we were working off of. And so then we spent all this time as we were now gathering all these people who had not previously been churchgoers to the point that after some of this stuff happened, we got, I got a call from National Public Radio because a Harvard dean had called them and said, you got to check out what's happening in Cambridge. You've got all these Harvard deans rolling on the floor and doing all this stuff. And they called me up and they said, we got to cover this. There's Harvard deans rolling on the floor. And I said, oh, there's great stuff happening. All except the rolling on the floor stuff, it's all true. They said, there's no rolling on the floor. I said... Not, not any, there's been no rolling that I've been aware of. And they said, oh, and they were disappointed. Um, but um, so we, we wanted to pursue that, but we didn't know what we were doing. And we did see a bunch of stuff happening, got reputation for it. So we thought, well, we should bring in the pros. You know, who knows about this stuff? And the people we thought knew about this stuff were the Pentecostals. Perhaps you've heard about Pentecostalism. It's a, a form of Christianity that focuses on this sort of stuff, that focuses on God being supernaturally powerful as like the main thing. And so we thought, well, they're the pros, and we don't know what we're doing, and so let's bring in some Pentecostals to teach us. And so we started having these gatherings where we would, whatever famous Pentecostal was in the area who would come and, like, do their Pentecostal thing and teach us, we wanted to learn from them. And I think after doing that for a few years, we actually learned something, which is that culture is very important. And we thought, oh, the Pentecostals are all great, but they aren't really helping us. And it's not that they're not nice people, they're super nice people. And it's not that they don't, uh, you know, believe in a supernatural God and experience it. Of course they do. I'm, I'm not saying they're lying. I'm not saying, you know, it's, they're good people. But boy, it's a misfire for us. And we realized it was a misfire because of culture. Because we were bringing in all these very secular, non-church-going people who just thought if there's a God who does stuff that I'm interested in, that's kind of it. And they were coming from very religious settings, from the deep south, from places where everyone went to church and where there's all this kind of church language and church understanding. And so when they would talk to us, we would actually get our people, like they'd get angry. And I would think, oh, that doesn't go well. You know, time after time we're making them angry as people are going to try to tell them things about the Holy Spirit. And we realized it's because they brought a really strong culture that was very different than the culture of the people we were reaching. And so we felt like we're sort of on our own. You know, we got to figure out this this supernatural stuff, this kind of spirit of God who does powerful stuff, stuff, on our own. And so we, I've probably spent hundreds of hours now talking to people like Charles and Caroline and others, but a lot of people about, so what are we learning? I mean, like, what, what's the deal just for normal people, not really for really church-going people, just for anybody? What's the deal about the Holy Spirit? And what's the deal about the supernatural side of God, and what can we learn about that, and how should we pursue that? And so, as we thought about it, I found myself thinking back, if you'll forgive one more little anecdote, then I'll give you a really deep insight. You're going to be so impressed. It's really good. Um, But uh, I found myself thinking back to someone who was not quite supernatural in that sense, but who was sort of spooky and spiritual in a good sense that I'd met really early in my life with God. So I had not grown up as a churchgoer, uh, I'd been an atheist, and uh, yet there I was in my college years trying to follow Jesus. And uh, in, I've joined this Christian group because they were the ones who knew how to follow Jesus, and so I thought, I guess I want to do that now. So you guys teach me what you know about this Jesus stuff. And uh, we had, before school began, a preschool retreat to talk about 
what our school year was going to be like and how we'd follow Jesus together and help the campus follow Jesus that they wanted to um, before the school year started. So we were up. I went to school in California. We were in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Beautiful. There are lots of retreat centers there, so that's not an uncommon place for people in that part of the world to go if you want to retreat. But it's also, especially in that era, the hippie era was still very much alive in Santa Cruz then. It may be alive now. I haven't been up there recently, but it really was then. And so there were people in communes up there, and there were a lot, hitch, a lot of hitchhikers and people with, you know, long, unwashed hair and cutoffs and flip-flops. This is a very common thing there. And uh, we had a guy coming in to be our speaker, and he had had an interesting experience on his way to just come to our retreat. So he was not part of our group, sort of like, I'm a speaker at this uh, river retreat coming up. He was our speaker. And so as he was trying to get to us, he was driving there, and he picked up a hitchhiker, uh, kind of a hippie guy hick- hitchhiker. And the guy was friendly enough, and he said uh, to our speaker, well, what do you do? And the guy said, actually, I'm a Christian minister. And the guy said, oh, really? Then you must know Goldie, like out of nowhere. And the guy said, well, actually, I'm not from here, so no, I don't. Why do you say, just by virtue of me saying I'm a Christian minister, I must know Goldie? Who's this Goldie you're talking about? And he said, oh, everyone knows Goldie. And uh, he said, well, well, I don't. And then he, he stopped to get gas with this guy. And just on a whim, he says to the, uh, the gas station attendant there, so I just picked up this guy, uh, you know, who was hitchhiking, and I mentioned to him I was a Christian minister, and the first thing he said was, and the gas station attendant finished his sentence. He said, you must know Goldie. And uh, he said, that's right. That is what he said. He said, he said why? Who's Goldie? And he says, oh, every, the gas station attendant says, everyone knows Goldie. And uh, he says, well, where does Goldie live? And they told him, and so he went up to visit Goldie on his way to get us, just based on that. So they're driving up this very rustic mountain road, and they arrive at this shack, this kind of hand-built wooden building, small building, and they pick up Goldie. And Goldie is now in, he brings her to our retreat. And he says, uh, hi guys, I just met her today, and he gives a story about how everyone said, you must know Goldie, and I just wanted her to talk. Goldie, talk. Well, Goldie was 80, and also obviously an elderly woman, and uh, here's what she said. She said, I have the best life. And she, like, laughs. It's kind of an odd, but kind of a very happy laugh. Like, I have the best life. And he said, tell us more. Well, it turned out she, this, this shack she lived in had no running water. She had, uh, had I, don't, I don't know what, um, like, utilities it had. She'd been married. Her husband had died. She had two sons. They'd both died. So she was widowed and had no family. And she was living. She had no source of income. And she was living up in the Santa Cruz Mountains in this hand-built wooden um, building, and we said, well, how do you live? And she says, oh, people bring me food, and people always come and visit me, and they bring me firewood, and they make a fire for me just about every day. And uh, it's the best life. We said, well, how, how does that work exactly? And she says, oh, I have a secret. I pray every single day over my door, my entryway, that whoever walks through the door will be doused with the Holy Spirit. And they won't even know what happened to them, but it'll just hit them. And they'll, they won't know why they want to come back, but they want to come back because it felt so good. And she does her little laugh. <laughs> like, oh, good. And she says, and she, we said, it works. She says, every day they come back. Every day. And they bring me food, and, and I have the best morning, so before they come, I read the Bible. And when I read the Bible, I just ask God to show me something I've never seen before, and he does every single day, and then she tells us whatever it was that morning that God had showed her that she'd never seen before. She says, oh, it's the, I have the best life. And um, so it kind of goes on on this vein. She talks for probably an hour and a half, and then when she's done, the guy who was going to be our leader said, break up in groups of five and discuss. <laughs> so, okay. So we break up in groups of five. We're like college 
juniors or something, and we look at each other like, what does one say? And um, we think, well, on the one hand, is she encouraging? Kind of an amazing story. Or is she utterly horrifying? Because we think, is he suggesting, you know, we're all college students. We're all hoping to have some great life, right? Where we get a great job, and we get a nice income, we, you know, get a nice family together, and, and we succeed. If this is our future, living in a shack alone with no source of income and no family, and that's held up as like, wouldn't that be awesome to be Goldie? It just feels horrifying. Like, none of us want that for where we're headed. On the other hand, we've never met anyone quite like her. You know, she is pretty unusual in terms of what she, you know, who she is. And we agree that her faith is weird, but, you know, deep, you know, and that's, that's sort of amazing. And we also talk about just the fact that this whole everybody knows Goldie thing, what's that about? Every hippie hitchhiker, every gas station attendant, everyone knows her, and everyone associates her with Jesus. You know, that's, their, that's the association they bring to mind. Well, keeping that in mind, let me uh, give you a few thoughts from one passage in the Bible on this whole, what does it mean to think about God as supernatural? How do we think about God as supernatural in a way that can sustain, right? Some of us might be able to rally faith every now and again to think, I'm going to have faith right now that God's supernatural and and on occasion that'll do something good and mostly it won't because that's the way life works. But then mostly we're living our days, right? You know, that's just the way life goes too. What does it mean to live in a world where that's more present to us is the thing I thought about so much. And I think about this uh, among many scriptures. Here's a scripture I think about. It is from this book called Acts of the Apostles. Acts of the Apostles is, as you no doubt know, a story of Jesus' closest followers and what they do next after Jesus is gone, back up in the heaven with God, and uh, what's their next story. And it's this rip-roaring kind of adventuresome story where they do all these amazing exploits, often very supernatural, with the Holy Spirit, and um, et cetera. So here's one story, which is not that supernatural, but intriguing to me. It's a story where this guy Paul, one of the two main characters in Acts of the Apostles, visits a major city at the time, Athens, to talk about Jesus there. There are not supernatural stuff that happens here in particular, but more it's what he says. Athens at that time, it had been the world power, and so it had been top dog, and it had been eclipsed by Rome, and so now it was a little bit more of a backwater. You get the impression that the Athenians were sort of angry about that. They thought, we still feel like top dog, and we're the smart people, whether you know, you've even heard of the Athens, like Boston would call itself the Athens of America, meaning the smart people, all the universities. So Athens still had that sense of we're the smart people around here, and that's who we are. So he's talking to them, and here's what he says. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. So here's the deal with the idols, I think. You've probably in school studied the Greek gods, the Greek pantheon. And so you're aware that the Greeks had all these gods that they worshipped. Now, whether the Athenians listening to him here worshipped those gods or were kind of skeptical and regarded them as kind of a quaint vestige of the, the country folk, hard to tell. But here's, I think, the spirit of what he thought about the pantheon and why he thought of them as idols. So what he saw was a bunch of little statues on the road to each of those gods. Like, here's a statue to, what, what, I mean, if you know my Greek gods, I'm going to tell you Roman gods. I'll name a name, you're going to go... That's a Roman god, Dave. So I'm not even going to do it. I'm not going to risk looking foolish in front of you. But those gods. And, um, and that's what he's talking about. But here's, I think, how they function and what he's dealing with. What he said, basically, is the idea of idols is that idols represent aspects of our life that if they don't go well, we think our life is going to stink. So because our lives are all complex, 
So we think, I could have all the money in the world, I could have great relationships, I could have a job I love, and I could have a health crisis. All of it's wiped out if one thing goes wrong. So you have to kind of pray to the God that doesn't give you a health crisis. Or you can have everything going great, and you have a financial crash, and you're desperately in need of money. So everything else is wonderful, but you've got this money problem. Well, you better pray that you don't have that money problem. When you think about it, if everything else is going well, and you don't have love, you're completely alone, except for everything else is great, but no love, you, gotta, you better pray about that. Or everything else is going well, but your child goes astray and becomes a big problem, and uh, now you're just worried all the time they're in jail or they're causing havoc somewhere. You better pray about that. His point with idols is all of our lives have little slivers that are almost infinite, and that they all have to line up or our lives don't go well. And it feels overwhelming because we think, goodness gracious, how many things do I have to keep in mind that if just one of them goes down, everything crashes, it's hard enough to have anything go well. Right? It's hard enough to like, get a good job, or it's hard enough to have a good relationship. Just even one of those is hard, but I've got to have a million. And so the idols are all, I'll pray to that God, 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 all of them to make sure it all lines up. I think where Paul's headed is, it's a huge burden to see life that way. So I'll just say that's how it begins. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. So the Epicureans, you may remember, were the ones who said, look, here's how you find life. You have a good time. You know, you, you enjoy what it means to live in a body on this planet physically. So whatever it means to feel like I'm happy that I'm alive today, you do. There's a lot to be said for Epicureanism. But then he also reasons with the Stoic philosophers who say the opposite, who say, no, the Epicureans are utterly wrong. The way I'm going to have a happy life is not to have needs, you know, to find a way that my needs are put in the background and that I can be happy whether I have stuff or I have nothing. That's the Stoic philosophy. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign god, so they are not presented as, like, nice people here. Then he took them, they, they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So on the one hand, that may be a a dig at them, that they're superficial, pretentious people. Or that may mean, in one sense, maybe if you take it charitably, maybe it just means they're actually good people, that they're actually trying to learn. You know, they're trying, if there's something new they want to learn about, they're interested. Could be that. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, and then, of course, it would be men, sad to say. I noticed that you were very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. So what he noticed was they have all these shrines set up to all these gods who will solve some aspect of their lives. But they leave one blank to an unknown God. Because what they realize is we don't know how many gods there are up there. And there's all, just because we have 50 gods we're trying to do honor to so they they don't smite us, and that one aspect of our life doesn't go bad, we recognize our lives have infinite little slivers that could go bad. And so there's probably plenty of gods we don't know about. So lest that god smite us, we're going to put up this thing, saying to an unknown god. He says, that's the one I want to talk about. And of course, he has a perspective that maybe there's a god who has a whole different conception of what god being god means. He, this unknown god, is the god who made the world and everything in it. 
Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. So what he's saying is, what if I'm going to give you that one God, the one that's important, has a whole different conception. So he's kind of the one-stop shop. As opposed to all these gods, because there's so many aspects of your life that if any of them goes bad, your life goes down. What if there's this one God, and this God is known for having created everything, and you don't need to sacrifice to this God. This God has no needs you can meet, because he's the all-powerful God. You're the ones with needs, and he satisfies your needs. And that's what I'd encourage you to think about. What if there was a God like that? From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. Well, to the Athenians, the boundaries talk would be meaningful because they used to be top dog, and their boundaries had shrunk because the Romans had taken over. So what he's sort of saying is, what if there's a god, whether you are top dog or whether you're a smaller dog, that that god has determined how, the size of your boundaries, and that's cool. You know, either way, God's there. So I was pastoring a church at the time, it was quite a big church in Cambridge, and actually the biggest church in town by a fair country mile. And so I was prominent and invited to speak at various places, and with, for various reasons, which I'll talk about at this retreat, and I've told many of you about earlier, I, we just felt God calling us to, to move on and to try something that could be even bigger, but it would be giving up something big. And so one thing that uh, my wife Grace and I talked about like two years into our new experience was, oh yeah, for about a year, we still had the image of ourselves when we moved 3,000 miles away, that we were sort of the, the people didn't know that we were a big shot. You know, the people who were meeting us did not know we're kind of a big deal. And uh, they didn't know, but we were kind of a big deal. But after two years, then we thought, that seems like I don't even remember that feeling. <laughs> I feel like now we're just like, I'm the, mo- I'm the dad of, you know, Claire, and hi, and I've got this tiny little group of people who are hanging out with me and trying to follow Jesus together in Santa Monica, and I've got a new network of churches, kind of small but very fun. That's pretty much it. And people go, oh, okay, good, and move on. God determines our boundaries, right? And the boundaries can be big or they can be small, but the point is that God's chosen them and that God fills them. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. So I love this because the idea that people can feel their way towards God, that this God, you're almost like a person in the dark and you're groping to try to find out where this God is, but if you keep feeling, you're going to get there. If you keep looking, that's comforting to me because I feel like as the years have gone by, I've taught plenty of people about God, but I'm still kind of feeling my way towards God and kind of hoping it goes somewhere good. And he says, oh, it will. It totally will. So I wonder how you, let's think back to Goldie for a minute and I'll have a few thoughts and maybe I'll pray for us for a minute. But I wonder how you process Goldie, going back to Goldie for a second. Does Goldie, is Goldie an encouraging image? Obviously you didn't meet Goldie, but as you hear the story, is the idea of a Goldie encouraging or scary or both to you? Is it a, a happy thought? I think what I learned from her was a part of my interest in pursuing the Holy Spirit to the point that we show up in Cambridge and start just praying for God to do supernatural stuff. I think Goldie was actually a factor in it. Um, I found myself thinking, well, that kind of direct work of God that Goldie experiences, the idea that Goldie would pray over her doorposts, whoever comes in, 
I want them to be doused with the Holy Spirit, that they will feel a supernatural good feeling and, and always want to get that more, and they'll come back every day. The idea that even that's even a, something worth praying struck me as so encouraging. The idea that someone could be in that sort of extreme circumstance. Because I think if you were to ask Goldie, do you have a good life? She would say, I have the best life. I have the best life of anybody. I've never met anybody who has a better life than mine. That's basically what she said. It's amazing. It's like awesome. It's supernatural. I get people coming every day. I get all my needs met. I get people who love me or showing up. The whole town knows me. Every, I got the best life of anybody I know. Yeah, except for your husband dying and your children dying and you having no means of support. Except for that, it's all, it rocks, you know. Um, so it kind of depends how, you know, which experience is it? Should we believe her own self-report or should we believe our, you know, our lion eyes, as it were, from what we see when we look at her? became a big question. So I started thinking about that, and after, in the next few months after I met Goldie, I found it, it just nagged me. And I started praying, God, whatever the supernatural part of you that she's experiencing, I want that. Now, again, I'd been trying to follow God for like a year, so it was very new to me. And I kept praying it, and then within like three months, I started having some sort of crazy supernatural Holy Spirit experiences. I'd pray for people, and they'd fall over. People started finding their way to me and saying, would you pray for me, because there's such power when you pray. God started to, started to speak to me about, go talk to that person, or go walk over there and talk to the first person you meet, and that person would have this astounding supernatural experience and change their whole life over this thing. I started having things like that happening, all because I'd seen Goldie. And I thought, well, whatever she's got, I think I want to pursue that. Well, in Athens, Paul's stark choice seems to be either that we're going to worship idols, all these things that, if they go well, promise some sort of happiness to us, or we're going to worship this unknown God who gives life and breath to everything and satisfies every need. And the challenge with going to that God seems to be believing that the promises of that God are true. Goldie, whatever her other issues, had that part down. You know, she was good at that one, of believing that that one, the unknown God, that's who she was worshiping, that God would meet every need. She didn't have to be thinking about all the little slivers of her life. So I just thought, well, let's give it a try. You could make a point that Luke, who wrote Acts, has this as his whole thesis of Acts, this little story in Athens. He'd written an earlier book about Jesus' ministry, the Gospel of Luke, and he has an interesting sort of thesis statement there. He says in Luke 11, You fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Which I always thought is one of the great little jokes Jesus is telling. You picture the sadistic father, right? It's like some little innocent three-year-old says, you know, because it's a a fisherman society and they want to eat. So they say, "Uh, do you have a fish that I can eat to dad? And the dad says, I got your fish right here. And he throws a snake and the kid laughs and laughs and laughs and laughs. Or, you know... I'm kind of hungry. It's breakfast time. You got an egg? And they say, I got your egg right here. And it's a scorpion flying at their kid. And they laugh. What a good joke on the three-year-old. It's like, it's a weird image. And, uh, and Jesus, having made that absurd right suggestion, says, you know, of course you're not going to do that. It's an absurd image. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit, the supernatural side of God, if you just ask him? That's interesting. I mean, it like, is Luke driving that point? He, see, he quotes Jesus saying that. He tries to demonstrate that throughout the gospel. As Acts comes up, we see that again and again. And in Athens, it really kind of crystallizes. You could see, what if one of the big secrets, again, I said I'd spent seemingly hundreds of hours talking to people about what is this Holy Spirit stuff, this supernatural stuff we're experiencing? 
Is it any different than what our Pentecostal friends are telling us they're experiencing, but in very different language? How does it apply in settings like Manhattan or in settings like Boston? Or I live in Santa Monica now, very non-church going place. How does it apply in those places? Um, and is it the same as everything else? It seems to me that this is a way in. And the way in is a goldy kind of innocence in the face of the jadedness that the Athenians felt. The jadedness of the Athenians is like, we've seen it all. We recognize we've given up that we're going to have to sacrifice to all these idols. The only way our life's going to work is if we take on the burden of trying to remember everything that could possibly go wrong with our life and serving it to make sure it doesn't go wrong. <laughs> That's our life. And it's such a burden they become jaded. Because it's just like, how can we take the weight of our own lives on our shoulders if that's the approach? Or the innocence of Goldie, who's a one-stop shop, who's not taking that burden on at all, and who's saying, I believe there's a good God who's going to give me himself. She had a kind of a joyful expectancy of connecting with the power that she was going to need for her life to work. I was talking with a friend a few weeks back who I'd known for decades, and I said, you've been following Jesus your whole life. I started, you know, in my 20s. You've been following Jesus since you were a kid. Over a lifetime of trying to follow Jesus, what's the most interesting thing you've ever learned? Like, what's the most surprising thing? And she had an immediate answer. She said, oh, the most surprising thing is that there's no bad news in following Jesus. She says, I always thought God was vaguely displeased with me. Like, no matter what I did, God was sort of mad at me. You know, saw all the crappy stuff I did and how bad I was and things like that. And that kind of got just taken out of me. And now I just think there's no downside. And I thought, well, it kind of reminds me of the Goldie story. So a few thoughts. How do we leave behind our scoffing Athenian self and, like Goldie, go to this God who satisfies every need even when things are challenging to us? First thought I have is pay attention to your idols. So obviously that's the big theme here in Athens. And I'm not even sure what I'm saying. There's probably two ways of thinking about idols. But the first way I would think about idols is just if you recognize that, I, you know how I think we know if we have an idol? We know it through our anxiety. It's like, what worries us? What's that thing that we think, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, this is horrible. How do I, I mean, we're, I'm stressed. I feel anxiety about X. I think that's probably the main window into an idol is I'm worried about it. And what do we do if we pay attention to our idols? I think we have a choice to make. We have a choice to make about, okay, do I believe in the good God who sees all my needs and cares? And can I go to that God and trust that God cares about his idol too and see what happens? Or... Am I stuck that I've got to serve this idol with my worry? There's a, a line in the, in the when as Jesus is trying to explain idolatry, he says, well, think about you can't serve God and money. He says, think about how you serve money. Do we serve money by like doing nice things to it? We're its slaves. So we take money to the airport when it needs a ride. We cook meals for money. We don't do it that way. We serve money by being worried about money. You serve money by staying up night thinking, how am I going to get enough? That's how you serve money. And he says, don't serve money, serve God. And if you go, because those are two opposite choices. So I think noting your anxieties is an interesting way into figuring out what your idols are. Second, delight in the process. So Luke says we need to keep asking and seeking and knocking to get the good stuff from God. And if we do that, we can trust that God will give us what we need. So I have so many unrequited prayers. So over so many years, I pray for things that are very important to me. And I'll give you one picture of like how God has spoken to me over 15 years. I remember praying almost daily for 15 years for something really important to me that to this day I still haven't seen happen. I prayed about it this morning. And here's what God consistently says to me. 
oh, it's totally taken care of, Dave. Don't even sweat it. It's done. It's done. I think, okay, except for the 15 years of praying for it where it hasn't been done, and it's so important to me, I don't seem to quit praying about it. I pray about it all the time. What do you mean, it's done? God always says, oh, just be a little patient. It's done. I totally don't even worry about it. It's absolutely done. It's set. You're good. Don't sweat it. I'm on it. Well, how does one take such a prayer, right? Because if it matters to you enough, that you're, something's so important to you that you're going to stick with it for that long, and it's not done to the naked eye, but God's saying, I'm, I'm on it, totally taken care of. Here's how it's worked for me. It chills me out. It makes me think, okay, well, if God's on it, God's on it. I'm going to just delight that the fact that I'm in process and that evidently I can have a good day today, even if it's not done this minute, God's still taking care of it. I, it is not going to sink me. And that has really cheered me up, and then I can whistle a happy tune every single day when I pray about it. And the next day I'll worry about it again just enough to go to God, and God will say, oh, it's totally taken care of, don't sweat it. And then I'll whistle a happy tune and have a good day. You've got to kind of delight in the process to get the good stuff from God, it seems to me. Third, condemn yourself less for your flaws. Rejoice in God more. So Paul's message to the Athenians is not about all the ways they fall short. You Athenians, you're idolaters. Here's your problem. You worship idols. You stink. Quit worshiping idols. You'll never get nothing from God. Repent, you rotten sinners. His message to the Athenians is, I've got a better option for you. You should really think about This is really a good thing, a really good option. I've heard studies. I'm, I'm sure I'm crudely quoting them, but I'm not wrong, that scholars have sat down you know, at universities and tried to figure out how we think, like what's going through the average person's head. And as they have all these uh, people agreeing to be in the study, just write down every thought that crossed their mind or tell investigators what's crossing their mind. The, um, what they discovered is something like 80% of what crosses the average person's mind is condemnation of themselves. You know, 80% of what any of us think is that we stink. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> I mean, like, wow. I mean, I, if my wife were here who's very spiritual in a way, I don't feel spiritual in quite that way, she would say, well, that just proves there's a devil, Right? who's constantly whispering in our ears and always telling us why we're rotten and accusing us and things like that. And I think whether that's the devil or whether that's just humanity, what it means is we're always feeling overwhelmed. And I think part of the condemnation is that we haven't solved some problem in our life because we're all idolaters, right? We all think, I'm so worried about this and this and this. We condemn ourselves because we're worried about something and our neighbor doesn't have that problem. You know, the one problem that's most striking us, we look at, you know, I look at Caroline and say, I've got this problem, but Caroline doesn't have this problem. I stink. What's my problem? Because Caroline's awesome, but she's not that awesome, and she doesn't have the problem. So evidently, just a normal person can go through life without the problem I have. What's, why is she so great? It must be that I'm horrible. It must be that I'm even subnormal, that I'm just like any average person wouldn't struggle from this, but I do. I stink. So the message of Athens is if you want to experience the supernatural stuff from God, condemning yourself, strangely enough, is also idolatry, Right? Because what it's saying is the more you condemn yourself, you're saying, if I were a superhuman, I would not have X problem. Well, you're not a superhuman. You're just some schmo trying to figure out how to live life. And so Paul's advice is all that condemnation, just turn it to Jesus. Just go to Jesus, the good God who loves you, and say, hey, I got this problem evidently. What do you have to say about it? Condemn yourself less uh, for your flaws and rejoice in God more. That was when I asked my friend what she learned over decades of following Jesus, and she said that there's no bad news with God. That was sort of her point is that the thing she'd most learned was to quit doing that and just to believe there's a good God who loves her. Um, Each day, fourthly, note how God is in fact satisfying your needs. So somehow taking a little moment at the end of the day to say, well, Jesus, I don't know, I was praying about stuff, how's it gone? 
and let Jesus speak into you like, well, I don't know. Seems to me X, Y, and Z has gone pretty well. You know, it's not so bad. You may still have that problem that you've been praying about for 15 years, and it might still exist. But that said, you know, I'm on it. Pretty good. And as we noted, I think we were supposed to feed that God is alive. That's what Goldie did, right? Every day, she did not miss the fact that God was meeting her needs. She was aware that God was meeting very real needs. Food, firewood, labor, because she couldn't get her own firewood. She couldn't lift it, you know? So all that sort of stuff, it was very, ta- very tangible, very concrete each day, and she didn't miss it. She caught it. And finally, note your mood and take it to God. Because it's maybe the same point as I said earlier about not condemning yourself. But if your mood is such that, uh, you know, basically life feels hard and stressful and whatever else, just take it to God and say, well, I want to be following the unknown God, the goldy God, the one who meets all my needs. And so, God, here's my mood. What's your thoughts? You know? And here's what I've often said. I've had this big insight recently because we made this big move, which put us into the, the fact that I left behind this big church, et cetera, put us into like financial stress, which I knew would happen, and put our kids into some crisis because we moved them across the country. And, you know, we took a big adventure. And so I often would feel stressful. At recently, I felt anxious, oh, two or three days ago. God had the best insight for me. I've never heard this in my life. Here's a new one, hot off the press. I was feeling anxious about this, the, the risk we were taking. And uh, I felt like God said, oh, it's bad to be anxious. Doesn't it feel awful to be anxious? And I said, it does. How do I not feel anxious? And I felt what God told me is, I oh, don't even worry about it. Just have a great day. And I said, have a great day even if I'm anxious. He said, right, who cares? Sometimes people get anxious. Just have a great day. Just, just ignore it. Just don't worry about it. And I thought, I've never heard that in my whole life. I've always thought I've got to conquer the anxiety. I felt like God said, it's too much work. <laughs> said, who's, who's got the time to conquer the anxiety? Just have a great day. And I did. You know, so who knows? Note your mood and take it to God. Well, so we don't have our 2,000 people in the room here. So my odds are way lower that we're going to see great Holy Spirit stuff happening. So I've lowered your expectations. But now I'm going to raise them. So let's pray. Let's pray for the supernatural God to do something here. And we can pray for just, it could feel good for anxiety. We could also pray for if something is hurting or isn't going well. Or if you wish that you were healed in some way, we could pray for that too. And something great happens, great. But if not, I bet we're going to have a good experience with a living God. So... If I could ask, you don't have to, but if you wouldn't mind, stand up, and I'm going to pray for you. Let's see if just in a moment or two, we don't have much time, but in the time we have, I mean, why not use it to meet a God who actually meets needs? So I'm going to pray about a few things, but the thing I certainly want to pray for is if you feel like I'm sick in some way or I feel bad in some way, I want to pray for you if you'd like prayer. If you don't, that's fine, but I will pray for you in just a minute. So let's pray. Well, God, I pray that you'd raise our faith because, uh, you know, it takes some faith, right? Even just the hope that we can go to the unknown God who meets all needs that will make any difference whatsoever requires a little bit of faith and a little bit of hope. And I think that's what was so striking to me about Goldie is how much faith she had in that. That's what was so shocking. And so I sort of pray that whatever Goldie brought to the table in those days you'd bring here, an open-hearted expectation that, well, maybe there's a God who's alive. And I pray, God, that you would kind of give us enough faith that we could pool the faith in the room on behalf of each other. That even if we personally, our faith is low, that there's somebody next to us whose faith is pretty high. And someone next to us whose faith is kind of medium, but it's there. But that collectively, there'd be a lot of faith in the room. So right now, I pray you'd raise our faith in Jesus' name. Just raise our faith that you are so here and present and alive and love us and care about our problems. So in Jesus' name, right now, 
I ask that you would break anxiety. So in Jesus' name, whatever anxiety we have brought into the room, I almost picture it's like we lift it up like a gift we're giving to you that we're not demanding to hold on to. Like Here's that anxiety. Here's that stress. Here's that way in which I'm, supposed, I, I'm idolizing some problem that if it were solved, that God could solve that problem. We want to give it to you and say, we're sorry. We're sorry to carry anxiety. You know, we're no geniuses and it happens sometimes that we don't, we don't want to hold on to it. Here it is. Here's our anxiety. Would you take it in Jesus' name? So I break anxiety. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would just come and bring encouragement. Would you just settle onto us with the encouragement of a living God who loves us? In Jesus' name. now I'd love to pray for you if you feel like you know there's something physical that you'd like that you wish were healed or not there why don't you just if you have the boldness put your hand up and I'll at least know I'm praying for you and I'll pray for you if there's something physical you'd like prayer for alright in Jesus name I come to everybody whose hand is up and I say be healed in Jesus name And just all of us in the room, you know, with with all the faith we have, we just give it to you and we say, boy, it'd be lovely if you'd heal our friends. So be healed in Jesus' name. I speak to the condition that you have right now that you wish were better. And I say, be gone. I stand against any spiritual infirmity, sickness, awesome, bad thing in Jesus' name. And I break it. And I speak to your body right now that's feeling what it's feeling that's bad. And I say, be healed right there in Jesus' name. Be healed of that right now in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would just go straight to that spot that is not doing well and bring your healing power right now. And we come to you because we're needy people. And we just want to go to the source of the giver right now. We ask that you would heal that Holy Spirit with great power right now in Jesus' name. Come Holy Spirit, bring your healing right now. So if you wouldn't mind if it's what you're, whatever you put your hand up for is something that's testable, like, you know, the person's heart monitor, he looked at it and it had gone better. If there's something you can test, test it. And say, oh, I don't know if feel any better, it's feeling different. So if you... Uh, if you feel like, I don't know, at least it feels somewhat different with your hand that had been up down, just move your hand around and we'll be encouraged that it feels somewhat different if it does. Anybody feel like, oh, that thing, I think it got helped. All right. We pray for more, Lord, in Jesus' name. Come, Holy Spirit, and bring your healing power right now. And we pray, if you've started something, we pray you'll finish it in Jesus' name. We pray that you will just do something of great power and that you won't stop. We pray for a kind of relentlessness, Holy Spirit, in that area right now and that you will meet the need physically that's there in Jesus' name. Now we just ask, God, that you would come in great comfort, encouragement, and presence. It'd be delightful to feel you and feel the encouragement of a living God right now. So would you just settle on us in power and presence?
presence, that you would just be here with us in a way that we would know you're here. Amen.